Welcome, everybody, to Hollywood Godfather Podcast. And we want to thank you, all our listeners. Our ratings are going up. You are sending in your reviews, which we really need. We're told that by everybody. But again, I want to thank you. My co-writer, Pat Picciarelli, is here, who did the book, which is named after the podcast, Hollywood Godfather. Pat, how you doing, buddy? Good evening, everybody. How you doing? How you doing, Johnny? Great. Uh, we're just going to do the show by ourselves to our audience because we forgot our millennium has been working two and a half years with no time off. See, Pat and I have nothing to do in our lives, but obviously ah, right here. she has a life. So uh, she'll be missing for a few weeks or as much time as she needs. And um, we're going to ask uh, answer a strange request that I'm going to let Pat take the lead on it. The man's name is Ralph Inglestead, and you're not going to believe what you're about to hear tonight on this show. Yeah, you know, when when we got this request, we get emails all the time, and we check the emails, and his name crops up. Uh, Ralph Lewis Engelstead. And I said, well, who the hell is this guy? And I, I never heard of him. Not that I, I, I'm steeped in Las Vegas history, but usually I, I hear of these people. But I didn't, I'd never heard of the guy, so I decided to look into him. And uh, he was an American businessman. He was in Vegas, and he owned a hotel well, the Imperial Palace was a casino hotel like the rest of them in Vegas. He also owned an Imperial Palace in uh, Biloxi, Mississippi. But the new, good news about the, for our audience to know, geographically, the Imperial Palace was right across the street from Caesar's Palace. I mean, he was sandwiched right into it, the best hotels. At that time, it was the Dunes before the Bellagio opened. I mean, he had a choice piece of property, a massive piece of property. Yeah, want... He, he uh, also owned a uh, motel in Vegas called a Kona Kai. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it was a little further down. I mean, he, he was buying up a lot of stuff. Uh, and that later became the uh, Klondike Hotel and Casino. Uh, he also was the uh, donor for the construction of uh, the Ralph Engelstead Arena. This guy had some presence in, in, in Vegas. Did he maintain a low profile? I mean, I, I, you know, not that it doesn't mean anything. I didn't hear hear of him, but well, no. The thing was this: that I mean, he he really was a businessman, and he kept to himself, which we're going to expose to our audience of maybe why he did. But I mean, he, uh, I got to know more. I mean, I met him at all the normal functions when hotel people are invited and whatever, and um, me being somewhat of a celebrity. I used to bunk into him here and there. But like you said, I, I didn't never, he was not like the Boyd family or or the Gone family or the Wins and people that we knew, even Modelitz, you know. But he, he was known. And uh, well, he, he also owned the uh, Las Vegas uh, Motor Speedway. So this guy was very prolific. He had his, he had investments everywhere. But that's not what he was most famous for. As we as we come to find out, yeah, and him him having all of those speedways and all that, they were all the things he was interested in, for a lot of reasons. But I, as I said, I got to really know him better on later on in life, as as uh, I, when I opened State Street in 1980, because he became a regular, and most of those regulars, I used to take care of them. 
I had the just sort of the visual of my audience who hasn't had the pleasure of being at State Street. We had it, we sat 380 people for dinner, and it had a lounge for disco music. It had a piano bar just before you went to dinner, and then I took the building next door and I opened a casino. And I just want to set this picture for you, but I had eight booths a little ra a little raised from the floor so they could see better, and it was called King's Row, and we had, I got that from all the big showrooms because anybody of any prominence always sat in King's Row, and when you went to a showroom, you always looked over to see who was in there. So Ralph had one of those booths, and he used to come in a lot. And this one night when I came in, you know, I checked the reservations all the time, and I saw that he was coming in. So I, I go to my perch at the bar right next to the piano bar, which I liked sitting up there for a couple hours, and greeting guests that I knew and go to the tables and say hello. And I noticed there was somebody sitting in Ralph's booth, but it wasn't Ralph. And he was wearing a hat. So I called the front door, and I said, uh, Who's sitting in Ralph Inglestead's booth? He said he said he's his brother. I said, okay. I said, but you know he has a hat on. I said, he said, yeah. I said, well, we don't allow hats in here. Tell him to take it off. He said he insisted he wouldn't take it off. I said, okay, I'll go handle it. So I walk over there, I introduce myself, and he said his name was Bob. He's Ralph's younger brother. I said, we have a policy, sir, that uh, there's no hat wearing on the premises. He said, well, I wear my hat anywhere I want. I said, great, but not here. I said, if you don't want to take off your hat, just leave, no problem, no check, whatever you have, I'll take care of it. He said, I ain't leaving. I said, excuse me, this is like my home. I run it that way, and I run it with respect, and I can understand you have your privileges address, but a hat don't do it. And he got really vulgar. So my Sicilian temper went to boil immediately. I grabbed this hat, and before I tell you what I did with it, he had this hat like uh, um, Bat Masterson, not a regular cowboy hat, but not a cowboy hat. And the, and the, the, the brim ring, or the, the band around it were all silver nuggets. So he got me so nuts, I pulled the hat off him, and I start beating him with the hat. <laughs> and as I'm hitting him, he's like getting these little cuts on his face. And I, I, my guys came over and said, John, you gotta stop. I said, okay, throw him out. And we throw him out, like a piece of garbage that he was. Not 15 minutes go by, his brother calls, and they put the phone through to me at the bar. And he says, Gianni, I said, yeah. He said, that's no way to treat my brother. I said, well, your brother came in here and being very vulgar, cursing at me, and he refused to take his hat off. He said, well, you and I gotta meet. I said, no problem, I'll meet you anywhere you want. He said, what if I come over there? I said, no, I'm doing business right now. He said, meet me at my office tomorrow. I said, okay, make it one o'clock because I'm out late. He said, yeah, come alone. I said, okay, no problem. Hell does that mean? Yeah, that's what I mean, but I, I knew about the guy. <laughs> He had a, a, a reputation. His office was in the penthouse, and he sat up there, and he actually had a machine gun on his desk. 
an old, like, World War II machine gun. And it's building up to the story. So I knew the guy was nuts, and I could carry. I had a, you know, concealed weapons permit. Most of us did in Vegas. So I took a 357, and I put hollow points, hot leads in. And I said, let me see what this guy's going to do. And I wear, I'm the, still the guy that's wearing the suits at 112 degrees. So I got, got there, and my driver said, you want me to come over here? I said, no, don't worry about it. So I go up there, and he's sitting there, and he has a bodyguard sitting there. And he said, you know, we Ingolstads don't get treated like this in this town. I said, well, I don't get treated the way he was treating me. I said, he got very vulgar, started cursing, wasn't going to take his hat off. So I took it off for him. Then he lays his hand on his machine gun. So I said, you know, let's cut to the chase. I drew my 357. I stuck it right in his face. I said, you don't frighten me. I don't care who you are or what. I said, I'll take you out right here. And he looked at that guy over there. I said, he makes another movie. He's dead, too. So he said, whoa, 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 let's calm down here. I said, well, I saw you reach for your gun. That's a threat to me. He said, I always drop. What? Can I interrupt for one second? Was Please. this did this incident happen before or after you shot the guy in State Street? Oh, this was before. Okay. This was before. No, so anyway, but but he laid his hand on the machine gun. Hello. Yeah. What would you have done, Pat? You're you're in law enforcement. <laughs> I don't think you have to be in uh, law enforcement to think to yourself, you know, I, I don't think I want to get shot with a machine gun today. No. So I would have done exactly what you did. Yeah, so I drew on him, and then he said, oh, whoa, well, let's come. I said, great. I said, let me tell you something, Mr. Ingolstadt. I don't mean any disrespect, but understand where you're putting me now. And I said, I'll take you out. So I heard that about you. He said, in fact, I really like you. I like you. I said, well, let's start over. And I put my gun away, <laughs> and I sat down, and we had a, a nice conversation. I said, you know, I, I run a, a great place. Everybody likes to come there. You come in. There's never any problems because we control it. He says, "Well, my brother, you know, he gets a little hot at and that. He don't want to. He don't like to take orders from anybody." He said, "Not taking orders. He could have left." So with that, we got really friendly, and he said, "Let's bygones be bygones. I'll talk to my brother." And he said, "I want to show you something." I said, "Great." So we go on a private elevator, we're up in the penthouse, and we go down below the parking structure of this hotel, which had to be 10, 15 stories high. We go downstairs, and we get to this doorway, and there's a big Schwartz sticker on it. And I said, okay, what's this? And we go in there, and he has a full museum for Hitler. Now, this guy's Jewish, and about 75% or 80% of the movers and shakers in Vegas are Jewish. And he takes me in there. He has Hitler's car. He has collections of cars from the Second World War. And he has big portraits of all the, you know, third rank. And there's a picture of Hitler in full uniform, and next to it, a picture of him dressed as Hitler. And, and I'm saying to myself, what is this guy about? Only to find out, as you did your research, Pat, I mean, tell our audience how, how crazy this guy was. 
Well, he called this his war room. Uh, now, to my way of thinking, he doesn't show this to anybody because it would have gotten out. Oh, it, yeah. It would have the press. So he only shows it to, to his friends and, you know, you're his new friend. He, he, he takes you down there. But uh, that's, that's taking a hell of a chance. I mean, you know, there wasn't any time in history where Hitler could be considered a good guy. I mean, he's one of the most, you know, evil personified. Who do you think of? Hitler. So anyway, this room gets exposed. Apparently, somebody picked it up in the media, and uh, now he's got a problem. Uh, there isn't any way you can talk your way out of having a uh, Hitler room, which you keep hidden. That's the problem here, and particularly of him dressed as Hitler. Uh, you take, you know, taking a picture of himself dressed as Hitler. Now there are people who collect Hitler uh, memorabilia, which is okay. I mean, it's 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 part of history. And you want to collect the artifacts? There's nothing wrong with that. When you have a room hidden away with this stuff, and your dressing is the guy, you've got a problem. So he decides to uh, back up a little, and he uh, he, he promised uh, that uh, he would rather sell it, sell all all his stuff. Uh, so that he he didn't want to aggravate anybody or insult anybody, and he wrote a letter of apology the Jewish Federation of Las Vegas, where he said, I feel what I have done and what, and, uh, uh, and I have to apologize uh, for that. And, and, and he did. Uh, he stored all his stuff away and he said he was going to sell it. So you would think, well, problem solved. Maybe he uh, salvaged his reputation. But that wasn't the case. You want to continue the story? No, Jim? you're dumb. I don't know. Okay. He was having a party for on Hitler's birthday every year before and after this happened uh, from uh, uh, well no for, uh, I, I stand corrected uh, he, he did he did it for two years uh, 86 87 uh, uh, three years 86 87 88 he hosted a party to celebrate Hitler's birthday at his casino in Vegas he featured uh, bartenders uh, wearing t-shirts reading Adolf Hitler, European tour, 1939 to 1945. <laughs> he got a sense of humor, but man. So because of this, the uh, Nevada Gaming Commission fined, uh, fined him $1.5 million for actions that damaged the reputation and image of uh, Nevada's gaming industry. He apologizes again for the parties, saying they were stupid, insensitive, and held in bad taste. Really? Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, that 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 the uh, row was uh, not his his last uh, uh, involvement with uh, with things controversial, and he all involved around Hitler. Unless you know other stuff. I, no, I, what I know about. I mean, I don't know why. Like you said, because of the fact that you know he realized. I mean, and he had the blessings of everybody. And one of his closest friends was Mo Dalitz. Now, Mo Dalitz was the token Jew of all the Nevada. I mean, he was Mr. I mean, B'nai B'rith, every, everybody in the world praised this guy. And he was, he was very philanthropic. He raised an awful lot of money. And another thing with our audience, this guy had such clout. And he was, he was Maya Lansky's guy. Like when I got to Vegas the first time, I was told go to Las Vegas Country Club, 
once you settle in, I was staying at the Sands Hotel, and I was to go over there the next day around 1 or 2 o'clock. That's when most of these guys were there. And who's there is Mo Daylitz, Perry Thomas. Perry Thomas, for our audience to know, he headed the Valley Bank, which was the lead bank, a Mormon bank started in Salt Lake City. And basically, all the casinos used that bank. That was the bank they were told to put their money in. And just to give you a little background, like when Steve Wynn wanted to buy the Golden Nugget, Perry Thomas and Sierra Construction put up her, bar, her, her performance bond, which was like a $5 million bond, for him to put the deposit down on the Golden Nugget. And for the people who don't know, the Golden Nugget was a small hotel down in old Las Vegas, and Wynn was going to revise old Las Vegas. And they really wanted it because everything up on the Strip was massive. And the idea of going up on the Strip, first of all, that was Jackie gone and, and, uh, uh, and, 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 the, and the Boyd family and the old guys from Texas that got there who had all, all the horseshoe and all those guys. And they forced Bugsy Siegel to build outside of Las Vegas. Most people don't realize the Las Vegas boundary is Sierra and Las Vegas Strip. Anything west of that is Paradise Valley. So all the hotels as we know it today, the Bellagio, Caesars Palace, the Sands, they're all in Paradise Valley. Not in Las Vegas. How, how they, did uh, uh, Daylitz and Mylansky and other uh, Jewish movers and shakers handle this when they found out about it? What he was doing? Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, they, they sat him down. And he did say he was going to get rid of all this. But as you pointed out, added insult to injury, it continued. The only thing, he, I mean, he, him showing me was a very rare thing. And there was a while where he thought maybe I did say something, and I did. Because of, you know, my allegiance was to Maya Lansky, Frank Costello, and these guys. And if, they were gonna, if there was ever going to be a movement, and this guy gone, who I thought was off his rocker to begin with, I just said it casually. I said, you know, I saw something that I can't believe. And the guy who's the head of the Las Vegas Sun, most people don't know this, is Hank Greenspun. Now, Hank Greenspun has been linked to raising the money and everything else he did. He was supplying arms to Israel. So you're talking about a Jewish advocate that really, I mean, why there is Green Green Valley in Las Vegas is because Greenspun bought all that property, and his son Brian and all them they had they they moved the Las Vegas Sun to they own every media magazine you could believe and every hotel throughout the United States right now. That's how big they got. So you can only imagine the people he was playing with. But I'm 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 visualizing is this guy 
uh, does he have Hitler lovers on his? What was he planning? Well, you know, years years later, later when these Hitler birthday parties are exposed, it shows that he didn't change his stripes. I mean, he's doing the same thing. I, I, you know, I realized that you know violence is uh, is is kept down to a zero level in Vegas, but I'm surprised he didn't get a severe talking to here. Oh, he did, and he promised them. He promised Mo. Because Mo reported back, and he said he had it handled. And to me, obviously, I, I, again, I didn't know where he was going with it, but I, I had an allegiance to Costello and my people to say, you know, there's this crazy man going on over there. I don't know yeah. what he's doing, you know. You know what I learned out of this, Gianni? I'm going to stop, stop having my uh, Jeffrey Dahmer birthday parties every year. <laughs> and 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 all the stuff Jeff sent me from prison while he was in, we we got close, you know. That's you're, uh, you're too funny. I'm gonna have to stop doing that because apparently stuff like this offends people. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I think Hitler mostly. I mean, it, he he got a lot of publicity, that unwanted publicity. <laughs> I guess so. You know, I I have I have a uh, an interesting story. You're talking about. Uh, the, uh, the, the hatred of Hitler, which is going to go on forever. You know, historical figures fade away after a while. Hitler's never going to fade away. No. He was he was the devil incarnate. Anyway. Look at the amount of mass killings. I don't well, know if our audience every, really knows. I mean, how many people I, he executed. Just, just out of luck, we're not speaking German today. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, one day I, I was in the 110 precinct. Uh, I had just gotten there. Uh, I was a police officer, you know, a patrolman rank and I was in a radio car and part of the 110 precinct encompasses Flushing Meadow Park and part of that is the Van Wyck Expressway which runs to the east of Flushing Meadow Park and that's part of the 110 so I'm there about two or three days it's it, it's a spring day I'll never f uh, forget this and my my partner and I who I just met the previous day were driving up the Van Wyck Expressway and I looked to my right in Flushing Meadow Park now in 1939 uh, there was a World's Fair in Flushing Meadow Park. Oh, and of, it's after, the buildings after, are still there. Well, you know, the, there's, there's uh, remnants of two World's Fairs there, 1939 and 1964. There's that big globe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's part of the 64 World's Fair. But I look to my right, and there's these two flagpoles. I guess they were about 40, 50 feet high. And on top of the flagpoles, as big as day, are two SWAT stickers with German eagles on top of them. Are you kidding? Brass, huge. I mean, we're talking probably at least 10 feet across uh, wingspan, and there are these SWAT stickers, and you can't miss them. And apparently, these flagpoles were part of the German exhibition in 1939. And when they dismantled everything, they left the flagpoles up there with the SWAT stickers and the German eagles. No one ever bothered to look up to look at these freaking flagpoles wow. and they're still, they're still there to today today they're still there uh and i'm thinking you know uh new york has a has a, a large jewish community it, it's got a large everything community it's, right. it's new york. but also a liberal community and i'm thinking if someone was to find out about this drop a dime to a paper or something and say you know, they, they dismantled everything else, but they leave an homage to Nazi Germany uh, forever. And I was there, in fact, when I was at the book party, uh, our, our, our party, that was two years ago. Right. I 
was in Queens because I used to live there, and um, I drive up to Van Wick, and I turn, and they're still there. <laughs> Are you kidding? No. So why don't you drop a dime? What I did do that could be interesting. This book, uh, Bloodshot Eyes, my, my first uh, uh, work of fiction. I open up the book where there's a uh, a double homicide in Flushing Meadow Park underneath those flagpoles, and I mention the fact that they're you know Nazi memorabilia flagpoles. I figure people are going to read this book and some of them make a stink about it. Nothing. And they didn't do anything about that either. The book is still selling. <laughs> and you know, and you, your publisher is Jewish, isn't it? Uh, who knows? So long ago, but uh, I'm just surprised that I mean, I, I sold a significant number of those books, and through this show, I'm still selling them, and no one has said anything. They still, they still remain. I mean, that's so crazy to me that you know, well, perhaps these things go on. After this, not after this is broadcast. Maybe somebody will drop a dime. Hell, they should. Yeah, they should. Yeah. Why pay? I mean, especially the Jewish community in New York City. I, I know the right guy to call too. I think. <laughs> Let's get yeah, publicity. Make a splash. Think if they say as broadcast on a Hollywood Godfather podcast, a little-known New York fact, so on and so forth. There you go. It always surprised me. I mean, it's a no. I mean, I can't believe it. And, and that was the first one in the thirties, right? Thirty-nine. Yeah, thirty-nine. 39. That was when uh, Hitler came to power, just before he was. They already waged uh, war, waging the war in Europe, and we didn't get involved until 1941. But uh, yeah. So I mean, because I never, when I left, I left Vegas in 80, 81. I actually left. I, no, I wait, wait a minute. I'm talking about 80, 89 is when I had that incident in my club. I left 90. And never to know again what happened to Ralph Finkelstead. I mean, his property obviously must have sold because they expanded the Flamingo Hotel. Do you know what really happened to him? Or? Just passed away, 2002. And and what happened to all his properties? You don't know. I went to his family that they're still uh, that they still own. He, uh, he, he had children. Uh, it doesn't. In the research I did, they didn't mention uh, uh, children. But uh, he owned hotels outside of Vegas. Uh, I don't know if the family wound up selling them. It's just, you know, I, I don't think this guy was looking for publicity. I mean, obviously he wasn't. I mean, just being a hotel owner in Vegas uh, puts you on the map. But to do what he did, uh, I mean, he's a smart guy, obviously. Uh, he probably said, I'll, I'll keep this under wraps and show this to a couple of friends of mine. But the parties did him in. Yeah. After he, he was probably shunned, I would think, by the Jewish community in Vegas. I, I can't see him talking his way out of that. No, but not only that, I, I know <laughs> Vegas, when they, when they start stripping you, because I remember soon after the headlines, in fact, there was a major headline in the New York Times, I remember. Did, did you find that, that, that oh, story? Man. They did a big thing on him in the New York Times, so you would think that in itself would bring more attention on a national level than just Vegas. Well, like they say, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> well, it didn't. It was in the New York Times on a Sunday. I know, but apparently no one cared. Yeah. I mean, but look it, at this. Try that now. Hello. And, and see where you go. And, no, but they, they started dismantling his properties because they found every violation in the world. And he, in fact, I remember him going on the news that he thinks this is a harassment and 
And, you know, I don't know where that went. And then, you know, I just followed, stopped following the story. I didn't care anymore. But um, knowing the, the Bernay Briffs and everything else there and how strong and powerful and friendly the Jewish community is, I'm, I'm shocked he lasted that long. It's, uh, it's amazing. Well, maybe he was making um, money for a lot of people and they just gave him a pass. And those. No, that ain't it. But anyway... <laughs> Well, whoever asked for this, do we know who asked for this story? Ralph? Uh, there was an email from someone. I don't have it in front of me. But uh, this is how we, by the way, this is how we get a lot of show ideas. So oh, any, no. oh yeah. That uh, is, is on topic. And even things that are off topic. We go off topic occasionally. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that's a good point that Pat just made is because of the fact that, you know, we, we read your mail and we want more mail. So if you have a show idea... Please let us know, man. We'll do it. I mean, we definitely will do it, as you're finding out. And um, I do. I just think it was so surprising, and to find out even more now that nobody stopped the guy even. So it's. Uh, but I think we we should definitely report on those two flagpoles. Yeah. <laughs> so, so without Megan being around, um, do you do you have any mailbags you want to talk about, or do you want to go into uh, current yeah. events? Yeah, well, we can do a few now. Uh, let's see. What we okay. Uh, you know what? Let's take a break, earn okay. some money. We'll come right back and do a commercial. Very good. Thank you. Welcome, everybody. And I'm so happy to be able to tell you tonight that we are expanding not only the show, not only how you can participate and share into so many different facets of my life and the life of this podcast and the world we created, we are gonna expand our family. You're gonna have an opportunity to actually join our family. And it'll be up to you how far you go in our family by the purchases of things we're putting out to you, um, the opportunities that you can take advantage of, like having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, having me visit your home while you have 10 people for dinner. There's so many things that you're going to be so excited. Just go to HollywoodGodfatherFamily.com and we'll have all the information you want. And believe me, I want you in my family. Don't let me come looking for you. Okay, we're back with the mailbag. And we're okay, missing we Megan. If you're listening, Megan, Megan, we miss you. You know what I discovered? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm I, I'm a detective, so I, I look into these things. She's a lot prettier than me. <laughs> yeah, she is. I noticed that. I'm I'm a, I'm a trained observer, and I noticed that. And uh, not only that, she's definitely a uh, uh, a plus for the show. And we do miss. Okay, first one is from Courtney, and I'll read it verbatim. Uh, Hi, I have a question for Gianni and Pat. Did you know of or ever meet the two New York cops? Uh, Lou Epolito and Stephen Caracapa, who were both convicted for working with the Lucchese family and both went to jail. Thanks, oh Lord. Yeah, well, I mean, we actually did a show. I'll let you carry that back. That was all in your whole thing. Yeah, I knew uh, uh, Epolito. Uh, Epolito was a uh, boisterous, big guy, barrel chested guy. Uh, 
used to brag a lot about everything, which is what led to their downfall. Uh, Caracapa was known as Dracula on the job because he looked like Dracula. Uh, very, uh, very brooding guy, dark skin, dark hair, always scowling, never smiled. And when uh, Epolito, who I'd met on, on, a, on, a, on a number of occasions, uh, couldn't stop talking. His, his goal was to be an actor. He, he wound up going to prison for life. But uh, he wrote a book called Mafia Cops. And uh, he didn't tell Caracapa, who was his partner, uh, for a while. Then they got separated. And uh, uh, Caracapa went to the intelligence division, where his job was to to uh, root out any cops who were involved in organized crime. So in other words, he was investigating himself. Self, that's wild. You don't know the story. Uh, Epolito and Caracapa were doing hits for the mob, uh, specifically gas pipe Castle. Uh, anyway, uh, Epolito- yeah, I, mean, you know, I mean, for our guys to know, they, they worked for gas pipe. I mean, this guy yeah. was- They were unprepared. They got $4,000 a month each. And uh, if there was ever something uh, that they want them to do special, like uh, whack somebody, they get up to $75,000 per hit if they did the killings themselves, or even if they delivered the person to, to, uh, to Castle. Uh, so they were, I mean, the most corrupt cops in the NYPD history, and that's saying a lot. The, the job has been around for almost 200 years. Uh, anyway, Epolito writes this book that uh, Caracapa did not know about called uh, uh, Mafia Cops Regaling his family, uh, his family's involvement in the mob, uh, stressing to uh, this talk show host, name was Sally Jesse Raphael. Oh my God. Quite a few years. That uh, he had nothing to do with the mob and he, he uh, uh, decided to be a police officer because he believes in truth, justice, and the American way, the whole line of crap. But who's watching this show than uh, the mother of one of Caracapa and Epolito's victims. Uh, years prior to this, they came to the house uh, to pick this guy up and deliver him to Caso, who subsequently tortured and killed him. Now, the mother got a good look at these guys, and uh, there wasn't much of an investigation. Uh, I don't know why, but when she saw Epolito on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, she said, that's the guy who took my boy. And that's what started their downfall. And subsequently, after two trials, uh, a federal and a state, they wound up doing life without parole. They both died in prison. But uh, Caracapa, I know people who knew him, was livid. That I mean, how do you write a book and, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's. Uh... Stay under the radar. <laughs> you know, I, I met them in Las Vegas. They both moved to Vegas, you know. Yeah, I know, yeah. And we're right so fun. Each other. And not only that, they. Where every night in, in, in uh, Fred, Freddie Glussman's restaurant, which is probably one of the most famous, down there, and they're at the bar every night, like holding court. And I walked in there and they said, hey, you're that Russo kid from the Godfathers, yeah. And then they mentioned their names. I never met them here, you know, I was on the run, long, not on the run, but you know, moving around and never met the guys, thank God. But, um, they were like you're saying, so blatant out who they were and what they did, and they thought they had a, a license to kill, and they I did. I tell you, there, there was uh, the the feds laid a trap for them uh, because they knew they were bad. They needed the evidence, so they decided they're, they're going to send an informant in there to buy drugs 
uh, from them or one of the two of them or whatever. Uh, so they, uh, they they go in under the premise that uh, this undercover guy is- This was in Vegas later on? Yeah, yeah, okay. that, that he's a uh, movie producer and they're looking to shoot a movie in Vegas. Now, Eppolito uh, had visions of, of him one day winning an Academy Award. So he was all over this guy, oh anything he wanted. So one of the things he wanted when that one night, he says, yeah, look, we're gonna be uh, uh, scouting locations. Uh, I, I, I can use a little something to keep me up, a little blow. So naturally, Eppolito runs out, gets him the, the coke, and, and didn't sell it to him, gives it to him, but still, in the eyes of the law, that's sale. And now they think they got him on a continuing criminal enterprise. Only the feds weren't thinking this through because there was 10 years since they left the job and moved to Vegas. So where's the continuation there? There was no uh, investigations on them. They weren't accused of anything. So the case got thrown out after a conviction i mean the feds i mean that's I'm t- sometimes I, I hear about the feds that i'm glad they were stupid in my my you know on, on some they, of the things they, they, they investigated they me for. The bit to lock these two guys up and they did a sloppy job i mean it, it's a continuing stressing or continuing criminal enterprise to get uh 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 locked up you know, to, to, to get convicted to get your your your, your 100 year rap but uh they got convicted and they got they got cut loose uh, anyway, uh, uh, Eppolito's uh, daughter started a website uh, with all good intentions. I mean, she was oh, saying she, her father was innocent. I remember that. Well, like I was going to say, you know, she's his daughter and uh, she's raising money for the appeals. They exhausted all their appeals. And uh, uh, Eppolito died first. I believe he died about two years ago. Uh, they weren't in the same prison. Caracapa died the following year. Wow. And, as far as anybody in law enforcement is concerned, good riddance. I mean, they gave the job a bad name. Oh These my guys God, were yeah. forgotten for the wrong reasons. Especially for gas pipe, because everybody knew this guy. You know, it's, uh, anyway. Well, he started not to talk about but that's another whole okay. show. Okay, uh, now this is a, uh, a nice fan letter we got. Uh, hi, Johnny, Pat, and Megan. Huge fan of the podcast. My aunt uh, recommended the show to me a few months ago, and I've been hooked ever since. Uh, I'm early in the series, uh, still on season two, episode three, but I completely agree with uh, Megan when she says this podcast helps the younger generation connect with a part of American history and culture that they have no idea about. My great-grandparents migrated to New York from Sicily in the early 1900s, and unfortunately, I don't know too much about their history and general experiences. Johnny and Pat tell amazing stories and make me feel like I'm hearing it from my own uncles. Just want to show my gratitude to the crew, and uh, I can't wait to listen to more. Uh, uh, thank you from everyone else in the, uh, the Giovanola family. That's his last name. I have uh, a lot of the family tuned in uh, to either the book, the uh, the podcast, or both. Wow, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, now, that's what we were saying earlier. You know, it's uh, and to have a younger generation, and that's what Megan basically attracts for many, many reasons. But uh, that was our idea when we brought her on to be the eyes and ears of the young people. And fortunately for us that we've crossed now four generations because we get the mail from all over the world. And again, the, the biggest gratitude you can give us is to, co- to compliment the show. It, we need reviews and we're looking to further our reach with audiences. And um, so that that's really a compliment. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Salvatore. Okay, next, uh, can you tell uh, us, this is for you, Johnny, can you tell us about the filming 
of Out for Justice on the podcast, please. I thought William Forsythe played a very good part. He also uh, has a, a Bruce Lee's training partner. What stories do you have? Well, that was Steven Seagal. I mean, that, I, I was the only reason I was on that movie is because Steven made a pass. At, now, that's talking about interwinding. We were just talking about gas pipe, and gas pipe blew up this girl's father. Is that wild, Pat? This her father was Frankie Boy DeChico, who went out to the car. Oh, that's okay. And gas pipe blew him up, thinking it was John Gotti. That's a crazy link. I'm glad you didn't tell me this before. That's so crazy that we're talking about gas pipe. Gas pipe was known to bomb places and bomb people. They go out to a club in Brooklyn. John and Frankie Boy DeChico was an underboss. His father was a boss, uh, uh, Boozy DeChico, with the Gambino family. And Frankie Boy was the younger generation with Gotti and always was with John. And that Sunday morning was gas pipe that blew up that car, thinking it was John going to the car, because Gaspipe hated John and everything he represented, because Gaspipe was more old school. And yeah, John... John stayed at the meeting, and he, he had his, his driver slash bodyguard go get the car, which is what's normally done. Why put yourself out on, on, on the street for two blocks? They, they parked a little bit of ways. But anyway, what did this have to do with uh, Out for Justice? Because... I got out for justice because Frankie Boyd calls me up with with another guy's name I don't want to mention, and he says, "You know that guy uh, Siegel?" I said, I "Mean Siegel? Who are you talking about? You know that karate guy? I mean Seagal? No, Siegel." And this was Gotti saying this. <laughs> I said, "I know him." I said, "I'm going out to the airport tomorrow. He's shooting in in Brooklyn." He stopped by there and tell that guy to lay off Marianne. That's Johnny Boy's, Frankie Boy's daughter. And he was going to give her a speaking part if he could have her way with him. Well, fortunately, she got out of the trailer. She went and told her father. So now I go on the set. And Jules Nasso, who was the producer I happen to know for years and still a good friend, I said to Jules, I got to talk to... Uh, uh, you know, your, your guy. He says, well, he's in the trailer right now. I said, well, I'm on the way to the airport. Knock on the door. He said, oh, I can't do that. I said, what trailer is he in? So I walk over and I start banging on the door. He comes out like a Buddha. Who's banging on my door? I said, me. He's Johnny Rissler. Yeah. I said, I got a message. Your little girl, Mary Ann. Oh, yeah. Oh. And then he steps out of the trailer. He says, what's the message? I said, well, John Gotti told me, touch you again and you're dead. He said, what? I said, John Gotti told me to tell you, touch that little girl again, and you're dead. So now I don't know what he's doing. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the airport. I was walking in the car. I had a car service taking me to the airport. He said, no, 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 wait a minute. He's whispering to Jules, and Jules Nasser comes over and he said, Johnny, we have a part for you in the movie. He'd like you to stay on the movie with him. I said, wait a minute. I don't want to be in any way. We didn't know anything about it. So he threw a number at me basically to keep me around. Yeah. And how stupid he was, after a day or two, he said, you know, I'd really like to go meet John and apologize. I said, you don't want to do this. 
He's well no, off a lot. I mean, he's so crazy. <laughs> he, he's he's living in Russia now. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm a good friend of mine. Put him there. Putin. What's, what, what's he doing? <laughs> what's he doing there? Well, he again, toil, talking about idiotic moves. He's doing a movie down south, and he picked on some underage girls, and they filed a complaint and got a warrant for his arrest. He left for a while, thinking they'd squash it. Jules, everybody met the family. No good. So now he wants to go to Russia because he heard Putin, you know, he's onto that karate stuff. So I sent a message with Putin's girl. I used to see her all the time. She's the secretary here for Russia, but she was in Nellas all the time. So she sends the message. The next thing I know, he's over there, and they make him a citizen of Russia. He gave up his American passport. He can never come back here. And now I just found out from my same source that Putin put him and Snowden in Siberia and took all his documentation. They can't leave. <laughs> yes, uh, Snowden dropped off the face of the earth. I mean, he was giving interviews. He was oh, making, yeah. No, he's... There's two years, you hear nothing from this guy. And you'll never hear from him again. And... <laughs> Which I think, I mean, you touch kids to me, you ain't yeah. worth it. And this guy ratting out our own country, forget about Snowden. No, but that's where they are. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I always love Putin. I met him once, twice, but I love his, he's charismatic, and I'm, you know, I'm not political, and do what you want to do. But that's where uh, he went. But subsequently, that's how I got in out for justice, because they wanted me to stay. I had no lines. And the first scene we had was in a club in Brooklyn, and it's supposed to be a social club. And I'm at the front bar, and he walks by with his ponytail on and a badge hanging. And as he passes me, I say, hey, I see you still comb your hair like a girl. And he says, cut, cut, cut. That was all script? I was all, yeah, I just ad lib. I had nothing to say. What am I going to do, stand there like a mamluke? <laughs> yeah. So he says to me, you can't say that to me. I said, why not? He said, well, and he gets the director. I said, you're not supposed to cut either. You're doing that. He said, well, it's my show. I'm producing it. He said, you can't say that. I said, well, let me tell you something. Goodbye. Going to the airport. You asked me to stay. He said, what? would that make any sense? I said, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A cop that everybody knows is from the neighborhood has a ponytail, and he's coming into a club. What do you think he's going to say to you? He likes your hairstyle? They're going to make fun of you. They don't care about you. And I did that through the whole movie. And, uh, I mean, but he got what he was. I mean, unfortunately, he's now in Siberia. <laughs> Never to they be heard again. What's that? They left that line in. Oh, yeah. Oh, the line was in. A lot of lines were in that. I just ad-libbed. I had no script. They paid <laughs> me. Well, I could say they gave me like 15000 to stay there for a week or 10 days, whatever it was. But anyway. Anyway, uh, we'll have uh, one more here involved with your clothing line. Oh, really? I've been Googling to find Johnny's new clothing line, but I can't find anything. Is there a link yet? There is a link, I have to say. It's called La Cosa Mia by Gianni. 
and anybody's listening to the show, it's definitely up and selling. And um, and you'll see it in the neighborhood stores too. But I, I recommend going to the website, La Cosa Mia, like La Cosa Nostra. You may ever think you heard it before, but that means my thing. And uh, it's by Gianni, me. And I'm very proud of it, actually. And, you know, uh, you should put the uh, put a link on the podcast website because we're, we're going to get more questions. Okay, we'll definitely do that. Yeah, do that. All right, well, all right. time is up. And uh, we want to thank all of you. And Pat and I are totally grateful. Number one, the book is still selling. It's two and a half years later. And um, you keep selling in the interviews and the compliments and the demands. We'll fill them, and we'll talk to you next week. Good night, Johnny. Good night, Pat. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Or when it seems your friends desert you. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. Also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. Also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. To know what you like about what we're doing, you'd like to hear in the future, anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. Back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night.